0: Live. Good evening. Welcome to Elda's Targeted Individual Community Call. It's Tuesday, September 29th, 2015. So I'm going to read a couple articles. Um, one of them's from The Intercept by James Bamford. Uh, you got to give James Bamford a lot of credit because he has spent years exposing what they do in secret and darkness, basically, in reference to a lot of the spying. Um, but he published an article in the Intercept, and it's called "A Death in Athens." Did a rogue NSA or National Security Agency operation cause the death of a Greek telecom employee? By James Bamford, September twenty-eighth, two thousand fifteen. Posted at the Intercept, i n t e r c e p t. dot com. Just outside the main downtown part of Athens lies Col- Colonos, an old Athenian neighborhood near the archaeological park of Academia, Academia uh, Platonos, Plotono, think Plato, Platonos, uh, where Plato used to teach, along the maze of narrow streets, flower-filled balconies, hang above open-air markets and locals gather for hours at lazy sidewalk cafes sipping Demetres. Of espresso and downing shots of Uso uh, in quick gulps. It was a neighborhood, Kostas, and then I, I can't say his last name, so I might use some initials because I don't want to butcher these beautiful um, uh, Athenian names. So his last name is TSALIKIDIS Newell. He lived at number 18 Euclid Street, a loft apartment just down the hall from his parents, slim and dark-haired with a strong chin and a sly smile. He was born in Athens 38 years earlier to a middle-class family in the construction business. Talented in math and physics from an early age, he earned a degree in electrical engineering from the National Technical University of Athens. Considered the most prestigious college in Greece, where he specialized in telecommunications and later obtained his master's in computer science in England. Putting his skills to good use for the last 11 years, he had worked for Vodafone, Panophone, also known as Vodafone Greece, the country's largest cell phone company, and was promoted in 2001 to network planning manager at the company's headquarters in the trendy Halandri section of Athens. On March 9, 2005, Kostas' brother, Tanagiotis, dropped by the apartment. He thought he'd have a coffee before a business meeting scheduled for that morning, but as he entered the building, he found his mother, Georgia, running up and down the corridors yelling for help. Cut him down, she was saying. Cut him down. uh, Panagiotis had no idea what she was talking about until he went inside his brother's apartment and saw Costas hanging from a rope tied to pipes above the lintel of his bathroom door, an old wooden chair nearby. He and his mother cut the rope and laid Costas down on the bed. The day before his death, Kostas' boss at Vodafone had ordered that a newly discovered code, a powerful and sophisticated bug, be deactivated and removed from its system. The wiretap placed by persons unknown targeted more than 100 top officials, including then-Prime Minister Kostas Karamanlis and his wife, Natasa. The mayor of Athens, members of the ministerial cabinet as well as journalists capturing not only the country's highest secrets but also its most intimate conversations the question was who did it for a year the eavesdropping case remained secret but when the affair finally became public it was regarded as Greece's watergate one newspaper called it a scandal of monumental proportions and it is and At its center was the dark underside of the 2004 Summer Olympic Games in Athens. While the athletes were competing for medals as millions watched, Far in the Shadows spies had hacked into the country's major telecommunication system to listen and record. A decade later, Kostas' death is caught up in an investigation into what now appears to have been a United States covert operation in Greece. Last February, Greek authorities took the extraordinary step of issuing an international arrest warrant for a CIA, or Central Intelligence Agency, official the Greeks believe was a key figure in the operation while based in Athens. Unnoticed by the United States press, the warrant was a near... was a nearly unprecedented action by an allied country. The intelligence official, identified as William George Basil, was accused of espionage and eavesdropping. By then, uh, But by then, he had already left the country, and the United States government, as it has done for the past 10 years, continues to stonewall Greek authorities on the agency's involvement. The Greek charges only touched the surface, however, and Basil may be less a key figure than simply a spy guilty of poor tradecraft. An investigation by The Intercept has uncovered not only the role of the Central Intelligence Agency, but also that of the National Security Agency, as well as how and why the operation was carried out. The investigation began while I was producing a documentary for PBS's NOVA on cyber warfare, scheduled to air on October 14th, for which some of the interviews were conducted. In addition, I had an exclusive access to highly classified and previously unreported NSA documents released by Edward Snowden. The Intercept, along with the Greek newspaper The Marini interviewed over two dozen people familiar with the wiretapping case, ranging from U.S. intelligence officials and Greek government officials to those involved in the investigation and its aftermath. Many of those interviewed agreed to talk on condition that their names not be used, fearing criminal prosecution for speaking on intelligence matters of professional or professional retribution. While some questions remain, the evidence points to a massive, Illegal eavesdropping program that may have led to Costas's tragic death. Costas was engaged. His brother Panagiotis Pen- told me last year he was planning to get married, like Costas, but who was three years younger. Panagiotis spoke fluent English, the product of frequent trips to the United States, both on business and vacation. After a dinner of lamb and hummus at a restaurant not far from the apartment where Costas died, Panagiotis spoke emotionally about his brother. He had met the woman of his life, and they were planning to get married really soon. And for that reason, they were looking to get a house, and they had already started buying things that they could use in their new household. Costas was happy and optimistic, and things had been working out really good for him. At a time, Panagiotis couldn't, couldn't understand what had happened. Kostas was in good health and, at least until recently, seemed to love his job at Vodafone. I thought there was no reason for him to commit suicide, he said, although he acknowledged Costas had been under more pressure than usual. In the last year of his life, he was working very hard because Greece had undertaken the Olympic Games of 2004 he said, and that meant a lot of hours at work and a lot of planning to beef up the networks. Given the enormous number of journalists and tourists who were planning to attend the events, all wanting to communicate, Costas's workload increased enormously in the month before the games were to begin. Eventually, the technical infrastructure created by the Athens Olympic Organization Committee for staff and media involved more than 11,000 computers 23,000 fixed-line telephone devices, and 9,000 mobile phones. But the Olympics ended more than six months before Kostas' death, so there had to be another reason. At work, things suddenly began to change. Kostas told his brother that he wanted to quit. He tendered his resignation to the company, but it wasn't accepted. Panagiotis told me he wanted to get out, and then and he sent a text to his fiance a piano teacher named Sarah G I'm just going to say G cuz I can't pronounce her last name saying he had to leave his job adding cryptically that it was a matter of life and death as Kostas T and his Colleagues at Vodafone worked overtime in the months leading up to the Games, thousands of miles away. Another group was also getting ready for the Summer Olympics in Greece, members of the United States National Security Agency. But rather than communicating, they were far more interested in listening. According to previously undisclosed documents from the Snowden archives, NSA has a long history of tapping into Olympic Games, both overseas and within the United States. NSA has had an active role in the Olympics since 1984's Los Angeles Games, according to a classified document from 2003, and has seen its involvement increase with the recent Games in Atlanta, Sydney, and Salt Lake City. During the 2002 Winter Olympics in Salt Lake City, the focus was on counterterrorism, and NSA acted largely in support of the FBI in a fusion cell known as the Olympic Intelligence Center, or OIC. NSA's support to the 2004 Olympics in Athens would be much more complicated. In 2004, for the first time since the 9-11 attacks of 2001, the Summer Olympic Games would be held outside the United States, and thus the difficulties would be far greater. Several factors will make the Athens Olympics vastly different, the document continued. Not the least of which is the fact these Olympics will not be held at a domestic location. Also different is that the security organization that NSA will support is the EYP, or Greek National Intelligence Service. NSA will gather information and tip off the EYP of possible terrorist or criminal action. Without a doubt, the communication between NSA and EYP will take some coordination, and for that reason, preparations are already underway, quote-unquote. According to a former senior U.S. intelligence official involved with the operation, there was close cooperation between NSA, or National Security Agency, and the Greek government. The Greeks identified terrorist nets, so NSA put these devices in there, and they told the Greeks, okay, when it's done, we'll turn it off, quote-unquote, said the source. They put them in the Athens communication system with the knowledge and approval of the Greek government. This was to help with security during the Olympics. The Olympic Games ran smoothly. There were no serious terrorist threats, and Greece had its best medal tally in more than a century. On August 29, 16 days after the Games began, closing ceremonies were held at the Athens Olympic Stadium. As 70,000 people watched, Greek performers displayed traditional dances, a symbolic lantern was lit with the Olympic flame and Dr. Jacques Roger, president of the International Olympic Committee, gave a short speech and then officially closed the Games. Two weeks later, the Paralympics ended, and at that point, Keeping their promise to the Greek government, the National Security Agency employees should have quietly disconnected their hardware and deleted their software from the local telecommunication system, packed up their bugging equipment, and boarded a plane for Fort Meade. The problem was, they did not. Instead, they secretly kept the spying operations active, but instead of terrorists, they targeted top Greek officials. According to the former United States intelligence official involved with the operation, the National Security Agency began conducting the operation secretly without the approval or authorization of the Central Intelligence Agency's chief of station in Athens, the United States ambassador or the Greek government. We had a huge problem right after the Greek Olympics, the source said. They, the NSA, said, when the Olympics is over, we will turn it off and take it away. And after the Olympics, they turned it off, but they did not take it away. And then they turned it back on, and the Greeks discovered it. They triangulated some signals, anonymous signals, and and it all pointed back to the embassy. At that point, the source said, someone from the Greek government called Richard Eric Pound the CIA chief of station at the embassy in Athens and the person officially responsible for all intelligence operations in the country. Pound had arrived in May 2004 replacing Michael F. Walker, the agency's former deputy director of the paramilitary special activities division as chief of station in Athens, describing himself as a small town boy from Indiana who set off to see the world. Pound had joined the agency in 1976 Hefty and mustached, he was a veteran of the agency's backwater post in Africa. Pound, according to the source, knew nothing about the operation having been turned back on. So he called his boss at CIA headquarters to ask about it. He says, what in God's name is this all about, said the source. Pound declined to speak to the intercept. Pound's boss then immediately called his NSA counterpart, Oh, yeah, we were going to tell you about that, the NSA official told Pound, CIA boss, according to the source. They didn't take
1: it out, and they turned it back on. Not informing the chief of station and the
0: ambassador was an enormous breach of protocol. The chain of events surprised another source, a longtime veteran of the Central Intelligence Agency's National Clandestine Service, who was once a colleague of Basil in Athens. I cannot think of another time in my experience when that ever happened. That's
1: how unusual it is, the source said. I'm astounded by that. And you have to understand all these capabilities. You're talking about
0: 2004. They went, live, they went live on me in 2006. There was a lot of field testing and training to do. In 2006, Chris Inglis became the NSA's deputy director, the agency's number two official, who was thus in a position to discover what had happened. In an interview, I questioned him about the scandal and the illegal bugging operation. Was the NSA involved, I asked? English offered Inglis INGLIS offered no denial. I couldn't say whether NSA was involved in that or any other activity that might have been alleged to be conducted by an intelligence service, let alone the National Security Agency. English English. He did confirm, however, that NSA operations in foreign countries would normally have the approval of the CIA chief of station. The chief of station, he said, would speak on intelligence matters for the nation or essentially be expected to adjudicate matters on behalf of the nation, he added. So if NSA was expected to conduct an intelligence operation physically in some particular place of the world, I would expect that the chief of mission, the ambassador, and that the chief of station, the intelligence representative, would have some influence on that, some kind of ability to understand what it was and to ensure that it was done in a proper way, quote-unquote. I also put the question to General Michael Hayden, the NSA director at the time. Do you remember the incident that came up involving Greece? I asked, not anything we're going to talk about here, he said. Did that come to your attention, I pressed? Not something I can talk about, he replied. At the time of the Greek bugging operation, Hayden was also secretly running the NSA's illegal, warrantless, eavesdropping, and metadata dragnet surveillance programs, the largest domestic spying operation in United States history. Stonewalled by the United States over the past decade, Greek investigators were nevertheless able to follow a digital trail right to the front door of the United States Embassy in Athens and then to William George Basil, a mysterious embassy official with a Greek background. Although very little is publicly known about Basil, interviews with his relatives and childhood friends in Greece, as well as fellow embassy employees and intelligence officials in Athens and the United States, shed light on his background. Basil was born on december 10, nineteen fifty in Baltimore, where many of his relatives had settled after emerging immigrating from Greece. Much of his extended family came from the small Greek island of Carpathos in the Aegean Sea, a port of call for Argonauts traveling between Libya and Crete and mentioned in Homer's Iliad. Eod Yod can't say it. <clears throat> There, his ancestors worked as stonemason and as farmhand in mountainside wheat fields. His father, George, had immigrated to the United States for Basil, and his sister, Maria, spent their early years. But when Basil was nine, his now-divorced father became engaged to a woman from Carapathos, and they all traveled to the island for the wedding. An old snapshot shows a young Basil in a suit, jacket, sitting uneasily on the back of a donkey. After a few months, the family returned to the United States. Then, in the 1960s, when Basil was in his early teens, moved back to Carpathos for good. Today, childhood friends there still remember Basil as Billy, an Americanized youth who liked to spend time on the beach. His cousin, Nikos, often played sports with him. He played rugby when he was young, Nico said he was amazingly smart. We grew up in the same house his stepmother, Margulis, raised us. And Basil's un- uncle, Menolis, a local school teacher, remembered him as a happy kid who smiled. He was always restless uh, as a young man. He searched things, he said. Most of all, he liked the history of this place, the folklore, and he loved Greece and Carpathos Village, Olympos, more than anything. After graduating from high school at the American Community School in Athens in 1968, Basil joined the Army for five years and was posted to Alaska. Then, according to Basil's former CIA colleagues, he took a job as a Baltimore County Deputy Sheriff and later joined the CIA's Office of Security as a polygraph expert. But after nearly two decades, said the colleague, he grew bored with strapping recruits and potential agents to lie detectors machines and sought a position in the agency's Dictorate of Operations. Largely based on his Greek heritage and fluency in the language, he was accepted and quickly disappeared behind the agency's heavy black curtain, emerging undercover as a foreign service officer with the State Department. With a black diplomatic passport in his pocket, he was soon on his way to Athens, the city he knew well. He... Had owned an apartment in the city for many years, which he rented out soon after arriving. He moved into an apartment near the beach in Glyfada, one of the most exclusive areas of the city, home to ship owners and wealthy business executives. A longtime biker, he would often cruise around the city on his motorcycle. At, at the U.S. Embassy in Athens, he was officially a second secretary in the regional affairs section, later promoted to first secretary. In reality. in reality, he joined the CIA station as a terrorism expert. The station, located on the embassy's top floor with the forgery section in the basement, was one of the largest in Europe because it often serves smaller Middle East stations with logistical help and temporary personnel, protected by bulletproof vests under his shirt, a 9 millimeter pistol strapped to his belt and a small M38 handgun on his ankle. Basil, who had a reputation as an Olympic-level shooter, drove around the city in an armored car looking for informants to recruit and liaisoning with the Greek police organizations. According to a confidential report by Greek prosecutor Yenis Theotis obtained by The Intercept, Basil played a role in the March 2003 operation just prior to the United States invasion of Iraq. That involved an informant recruited by the embassy's CIA station. The operation codename NET, N-E-T, led to the discovery by a joint U.S.-Greek team of a small cache of guns and explosives in the basement of the Iraqi embassy in Athens. While most CIA assignments to Athens were two years, Basil kept extending his tour, giving him an opportunity to spend time on Carpathos, visiting friends and relatives and playing backgammon. He never withheld where he was working or what he was doing, recalls his cousin Nikos. A lot of time we would call each other and he would tell me I am in the Middle East. His job was to report on the sentiments of those countries' societies. From what he said, he had a lot of friends in high places. I understood that he was acquainted with Minister of Interiors and Ministers of Public Order in Greece. One person who knew Basil in passing was John Brady Kiesling, a now-retired career Foreign Service officer who had worked as the embassy's political officer from July 2000 to March 2003. I spoke to him in his department in the historic Plaka section of Athens, a labyrinth of winding streets and colorful shops in the shadows of the Acropolis. After leaving his post at the embassy, he decided to remain in Greece, where he had followed the bugging case closely. When I brought up the possibility of the NSA conducting a covert operation out of the embassy without the knowledge of either the ambassador or the CIA chief of station, he looked surprised. I would say that a rogue agency was performing it if it was performed without the prior clearance with the ambassador as the president's representatives in Greece, he said. It definitely is something that is hanging as a sort of swinging sword blade over the United States-Greek relationship. But according to Basil's former CIA colleague in Athens, there are occasions when an ambassador is not informed by the agency because of the sensitivity of the operation. However, there was never a time when a chief of station was kept in the dark. There were times we didn't inform the ambassador. It was just too sensitive, and we would have to get a waiver signed, at the source said. Half a dozen miles southwest of Athens is the city of Piraeus." P-I-R-A-E-U-S, the largest passenger port in Europe and the third largest in the world. It services about 20 million passengers a year. Piraeus is to ships what Chicago O'Hare Airport is to planes. There are long rows of ferries, endless quays, hydrofoils, and mega yachts, tankers, and cruise ships. It was here, not far from the pier, for ferries at to Carpathos, that the planning ended and the operations began, according to the Greek prosecutors' report on June 8, 2004, someone entered the mobile telecommunication center at 31 Akti Street and, in the name of a, in the name of Marcos Petrou, purchased the first four of what would eventually be 14 prepaid cell phones. They would become the shadow quote unquote phones. As normal calls from Vodafone went to and from legitimate parties, a parallel stream of digitized voice and data, an exact copy, was directed to the National Security Agency's shadow phone. The data would be automatically transferred miles away to NSA receivers and computers for monitoring, analysis, and storage. So that shadow. So you have to understand that this whole concept of you're talking on the phone and it is seamlessly being cloned and it's going into an NSA database. Well, that's NARS technology. That's an Israeli technology that now um, Boeing, I believe Boeing owns NARS. That's that whole thing where they they broke the story in San Francisco on the seventh floor. There was a secret room that was being utilized with this type of technology and all the phone calls filtering through AT&T's lines were being cloned. And not even the operators or anybody in the building knew that there was a tap going on because that's how seamless the technology is. Now they have man in the middle, which is not only is it being cloned, but your information is going to a man in the middle before it gets to its destination. Because the quantum capabilities, the speed with which they can do it, is you hit the enter button, you think you're going to say, I don't know, a website, newyorktimes.com. What you don't understand is that the technology is so fast, the computational speed of the computerized system is so fast that when you hit the enter button, and it takes you 1.1 milliseconds to say, it's faster than that, and it actually splits you over to their side
1: before you get to the legitimate website. That's quantum. So, they would become the shadow. So, I'm sorry, let me get back here. Purchase.
0: First, the first four of what would eventually be 14 prepaid cell phones. They would become the shadow, quote-unquote, phones. As normal calls from Vodafone went to and from legitimate parties, a parallel stream of digitized voice and data, an exact copy, was directed to the NSA's shadow phone. The data would be automatically transferred miles away to NSA receivers and computers for monitoring, analysis, and storage. Not long after, according to the Snowden documents are reviewed, the NSA's contingent began arriving at US-966G, as in George, the surveillance agency's code for the Athens Embassy. The planning had already been underway. Although the first race, dive, and somersaults are still a year away, not a single, not a Signals Intelligence Dictorate document, or SID Today, dated August 15, 2003. In truth, NSA had been gearing up for the 2004 Olympics for quite some time in anticipation of playing a larger role than ever before at the international game. The document then noted that NSA would be spending the largest contingent of personnel in support of the Games in our history. A team of 10 NSA analysts will arrive in Greece Greece anywhere from 30 to 45 days before the Olympics and stay until the flame is extinguished. The scope of the Olympics is tremendous, and so will be the support of the Signals Intelligence Dictorate and NSA. Then in a note of unintended irony, the writer adds, the world will be watching, and so will NSA. A key part of the operation will be obtaining secret access to Greek telecom networks, And it is here that Kostas T. may have entered the picture. As a senior engineer in charge of network planning, working for the country's largest cellular service provider, he would have been one of those in a position to become the team's inside person. But he was also far from the only one. Of course, it could have even been me, said another Vodafone technician interviewed. The operation could have been accomplished a number of ways. At the beginning, the installation of the bugging software, while illegal according to Greek law, had been secretly authorized by the Greek government. Thus, an inside person would have been operating outside the law in providing assistance to United States intelligence, but with the patriotic objective of helping protect Greece from terrorist
1: also the person may never have been told that the software also the person may never have been told that the
0: software was supposed to be removed following the conclusion of the games in any case it is unlikely that the person would have known who the targets were since they were they they were just lists of phone numbers in fact recruiting a foreign telecom employee as an insider inside person for a major bugging operation with standard operating procedure for both the NSA and the CIA according to the senior intelligence officials involved with the Athens operation what the national security agency really doesn't like to admit about uh, like to admit about 70% of national security agencies exploitation is human enabled the former official said so what does that mean so that means that, yes, you have all this technology, but, there's n- but the best way to get what you need
1: is to find someone
0: who's already inside, compromise that person, or find out everything you can about this person, and if they've got something they got to hide, that they're hiding, then they've blackmailed them. You have to understand that every spy agency across the globe utilizes, in order to obtain an asset, Someone that you could use to meet your end, your goal, your outcome, okay? They call it SMICE, the acronym, S-M-I-C-E. What does that mean? Well, every covert operation or overt operation knows S stands for sex. So honey traps. M stands for money, bribery, something that you get out of it, you gain from it, okay? I You can recruit people through ideology, through a cause, you know, for the greater good. This person's like this, so you need to do this. So that's cause-driven people, okay? C, coercion, right? You can coerce someone. You know, you might have someone, a kid that's going through college, and they don't want a DUI on their record, so they might tell them that, well, if you snitch for us, we'll do this, we'll get it off your record. You're having an affair. You're doing something weird. A like, man likes to dress like women and whatever. You know, and although you shouldn't care about that, some people do because they don't want other people to know. So then they coerce you. And E is one of the biggest ones. That has to do with ego. You prey upon people's ego. Oh, you're chosen or you're special or you're, you, know, you're, 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 you belong this and that. So they feed your egos. And every spy agency, every type of person who works in any of these intel agencies knows that you use that acronym to get your assets. S-M-I-C-E, or SMICE. Sex, Money, Ideology, Coercion, and Ego, and or Ego. And you could pretty much recruit anybody you want to based on that premise of those five acronyms. So maybe this guy did it because after 9-11, he wanted to be patriotic. But they don't
1: realize that what they're doing is they're compromising everything. You could be someone who works in a bank, and they say, hey, you, you know, you're know, you a single mother, and you need some extra money. So we'll
0: hand you $1,000 extra a month, and all you have to do is do it. So someone will come to the counter and give you a list of names, and you pull that information. Well, here's a thumb drive stick it in your computer when you go to work now you just compromise the company 70% of everything is not done just through the digitized world it's done through someone on the inside who's compromised themselves and then they end up compromising something bigger from Target to Chase Manhattan the Sony Pictures Entertainment. You can forget this shit about China and North Korea and Russia doing all these hacks. That's bullshit. It's a compromised person from inside. Some of them know it, and some of them don't even know it. This country's entire infrastructure from the Internet is fully compromised, not because of China and Russia and North Korea, but because of compromised Americans who compromise the entire system
1: from healthcare to finance to retail. All of it. And all it takes is someone because you blackmailed them because they needed some money because they were doing it because they didn't like their bosses. That's how easy it is. And this validates it. So let me repeat that. In fact, in fact, recruiting a foreign telecom employee as an inside
0: person for a major bugging operation with standard operating procedure for both the NSA and the CIA according to the senior intelligence official involved with the Athens operation. What the National Security Agency really doesn't like to admit, about 70% of NSA's exploitation is human-enabled, the former official said. For example, at a foreign ministry of post and telecommunications, if NSA determines it needs to get access to that system, NSA and or the CIA in coordination would come up with a mechanism that would allow them to replicate the existing switch to be swapped out. The CIA would then go and seek out the person who had access to that switch, like a Nortel switch or a router, go in there. And then it would be the CIA that would affect the operation and then the take from it would be exploited by the NSA. And according to a highly classified NSA document provided by Snowden and previously published by The Intercept, covertly recruiting employees in foreign telecom companies has long been one of the NSA's deepest secrets. A program codenamed Century Owl, quote-unquote, for example, deals with foreign commercial platform or forms and human assets or assets cooperating with the NSA, CSS, Central Security Services. The document warns that information related to Century L must be classified at an unusually high level known as ECI, or Exceptionally Controlled Information, while above top secret. Human intelligence guides can provide sometimes the needed physical access without which you just cannot do the signal's intelligence activity. General Hayden, the NSA head at the time of the Athens bugging, who later ran for CIA, told me, "Yeah, you still need the human element. Once you get the malware, once you get the corrupted uh, thumb drive, into, then it can, then they can access it. But first, they have to get access in order to get in. So say I'm compromised, which I've been telling the telecom, I got I got recordings." I got documentation. I have the chat logs. I said, if I'm compromised from my end and I log into your network, my banking, my my telecom, they get into you through me. You can't blame me because your engineers were too fucking lazy
1: to trace what was going on. But at least I told all y'all since 2006, you guys
0: might be compromised because if I'm compromised and I'm logging into you, then you might be compromised too. So it's your fucking fault for not getting up off your
1: ass and doing something about it. At least I told you and at least I warned you. So Basil's ties to Greece made him very good
0: at developing local agents. He was the best recruiter the station had, the best, said a former CIA associate in Athens. Basil may have been in charge of recruiting the guys on the inside. He may have made the initial recruitment. With an agent in place inside the network, the next step would be to implant spyware capable of secretly transmitting the conversations the n s a targets to the shadow phones where they could they could be present <coughs> to n s a computers developing such complex malware is the job of the nsa's tailored access operations or t a o organization and according to the previously undisclosed Snowden documents members of the group perform computer network exploitation operations against Greek communication providers as part of the preparation for the Olympics. In lay terms, this means they develop malware to secretly extract communication data. Also involved were members of the Special Source Operations or SSO group, the specialists who work covertly with telecom companies such as at and or, in this case, Vodafone, to get secret access to their networks. The key to the operations was hijacking a particular piece of software, the Lawful Intercept quote-unquote program. Installed in most modern telecommunication systems, it gave the telecom company the technical capability to respond to a legal warrant from the local governments to monitor a suspect's communication. Vodafone central switching equipment was made by Ericsson. The large Swedish company, and on January 31, 2002, Ericsson delivered to Vodafone an upgrade containing the Lawful Intercept Program, a piece of software known as the Remote Control Equipment Subsystem, or RES. According to a report by Greece, Greece's Authorities for Communication Security and Privacy, ADAE, Kostas was the Vodafone employee who accepted delivery of the upgrade. Normally, when a lawful warrant is submitted to a company such as Vodafone Greece, the information including the target phone numbers would first be logged into a program called the Interception Management System or IMS. This creates a permanent record of the request that can later be audited. The information is then sent to the RES, which initiates an actual monitoring by secretly creating a duplicate communication stream for the target number targeted number. The duplicate system is then transmitted along with the metadata, time, metadata, date, time, and number calling, or being called to the law enforcement agency. But despite having the capability to initiate wiretaps with the RES program at the time of the Olympics Greece, did not have laws in place to permit them. As a result, Vodafone never paid the additional fee to Ericsson for the IMS program and the digital key to activate the system. Far behind the NSA, the Greek government had only simple wiretap technology. All they had was some primitive suitcase methods and would allow very limited surveillance of very specific targets, said Kieser, Kieserling, the former U.S. Embassy official. From an American point of view, that was terrifyingly primitive. Then, according to Greek sources, prior to the Olympics, United States officials began asking the Greek government for permission to secretly activate the lawful intercept program, which led to the government agreeing to the United States bugging operation. Ironically, the presidential decree permitting widespread eavesdropping was finally enacted on March 10, 2005, the day after Kostas's death. For NSA, the missing IMS program. Was the technical opening its operatives needed? In essence, they created malware that would secretly run on the RES program and begin tapping. But without the IMS program, they, there would be no audit trail, no indication or evidence that eavesdropping was going on as the target, no, targeted numbers were being tra- tapped and transmitted to the shadow phones by the RES. It was a very complex system because it was invisible to detection. Vodafone Greece CEO George Koronia told investigators it functioned independently of whether the law, lawful interception system was activated and bypassed the security alarms. Exploiting the weakness associated with lawful intercept programs was a common kick, trick for NSA. According to a previously unreleased top secret PowerPoint presentation from 2012 entitled Exploiting Foreign Lawful Intercept Roundtable, quote unquote, the agencies countries of interest, quote-unquote, for this work included at the time Mexico, Indonesia, Egypt, and others. The presentation also noted that NSA had about 60 fingerprints fingerprints ways to identify data from telecom companies to industry groups that developed lawful intercept systems, including Ericsson, as well as Motorola, Nokia, and Simeon's. There are also a variety of access methods used to penetrate other countries, lawful intercept programs. These include using the highly secret special collection service known uh, internally as F6. It is described in another Snowden document as a joint NSA-CIA organization whose mission is to covertly collect signals intelligence, or signet, from official U.S. establishments abroad, such as embassies and consulates. The organization's job, according to the PowerPoint, is to intercept microwaves the thousands of communications pack signals that crisscross a city. The PowerPoint also suggested using the special source operations unit The people who work out secret arrangements with the local telecom companies and with a tailored access operation unit techniques could be developed to hack into the country's telecommunication system for the Athens Olympics operations, it would be a full house. With the malware installed, the NSA was set to go with more than a dozen shadow phones purchased and a contingent of employees from at least 11 different NSA organizations poised to begin eavesdropping during 24-hour watches. According to the ADAE report, the tappers first activated the malware at Vodafone communication centers on August 4, 2004, and five days later, they began inserting the targeted phone numbers. Then on September 28, following the conclusion of the Paralympic Games, some of the malware was removed, but less than a week later, long after the Olympic torch had been extinguished, new malware was implanted. And then, said Kiesling, Looking both troubled and perplexed, the mystery becomes why it continued after the Olympics, and that's a mystery that still has not been solved. It was a question I asked a former senior NSA official with long involvement in worldwide eavesdropping operations. They never remove it, the official said with a laugh. Once you have access, you have access. You have the opportunity to put implants in. That's an opportunity ever, Costas wrote. F. Ever, Costas wrote. Several of the antennas used for the bugging operations were heating up, and to Costas it was as if they had a fever. After the Olympic Games concluded, Costas started having problems at work. In the weeks following Kostas' death, his brother discovered one of his notebooks dating from October and November 2004, after the Olympics, and it described a number of incidents. In his notes, he said that at certain points in certain times, uh, I'm sorry, at certain points in time, certain antennas seemed to get overworked, and they were trying to figure out why that was happening. Said Panagiotis. T- Now, it turned out that those antennas were the same antennas that were connected with the system of the wiretapping. In another entry, which Penagotis submitted to the prosecutors, Kostas wrote about a month before he died, something is not right at the company. Then, at 7.56 p.m. on January 24, 2005, someone installed a routine update in the NSA's bugging software at Vodafone's facility in the Paina section of the city. It would turn out to be anything but routine. Within seconds, errors appeared, which caused hundreds of text messages from customers to go undelivered, and people began complaining. At the same time, an automatic failure report was sent to Vodafone's management. It was as if a burglar alarm had gone off during a robbery. As normally happens, Vodafone sent the uh, uh, voluminous logs of data dumps to Ericsson for analysis while those involved quietly waited and worried. The once cheerful and upbeat Costas turned glum and angry. We have heard that Costas was meeting inside the company. In meetings, they were very loud, and a lot of people were arguing, said P. He tendered his resignation to the company, but it was not accepted. He wanted to get out. On March 4. After weeks of investigation, Erickson notified Vodafone that it had discovered a sophisticated piece of malware containing a hefty 6,500 lines of code, evidence of a large bugging operation. The company also turned up the target phone numbers of the prime minister and his wife, the mayor of Athens, members of the ministerial cabinet, and scores of high officials, as well as the numbers for the shadow phone and the metadata described when calls were made. Three days later, Vodafone technicians involved, isolated the malware. Then on March 8th, before law enforcement had an opportunity to get involved, Coronius, the Vodafone Greece CEO, ordered the software deactivated and removed, thus hampering the, any future investigation. Apparently, alerted, those involved in the bugging operations immediately turned off their shadow phones. Vodafone's decision to deactivate the software meant our hands were tied, Giannis Coriandas, the chief of EYP, the Greek National Intelligence Service, told investigators. The next morning, Panagiotis discovered his brother's body hanging from a white rope tied to a pipe above the bathroom doorway. To this day, he is convinced that Costas was murdered to keep him quiet and prevent him from quitting and going public with the details. He probably wanted answers there and then, and I think that led to his demise, he said. The bugging, Panagotis suspects, may have been the reason Costas sent the text to his fiance about leaving his job being a matter of life and death. Within hours of Kosas' death, Ericsson prepared a formal incident case description outlining technical details about the malware and how it worked. It contained the warning, this document is to be treated as highly confidential and all necessary steps to protect this information must be taken, including the mandatory use of Entrust encryption within Ericsson. After seven pages of technical details, the report concluded that someone had loaded unauthorized corrections, quote-unquote, that is malware implants designed to introduce RES functionality in such a way that it is not visible to any observer. Neither Ericsson nor Vodafone have any knowledge of the corrections, nor is it known who supplied the correction, who loaded them, or how long they had been loaded in the network. In other words, someone had introduced malware to secretly activate the lawful intercept's tapping function, while at the same time hiding the fact that it had been turned on. On March 10th, the report was turned over to Vodafone Greece CEO Corionis. The T-Family's former lawyer, Them, Them Sophos, so believes that Kosas discovered the spy software by chance and then reported it some people were afraid that he would talk so they killed him in a professional manner he told a greek newspaper although the official coroner's report that he took his own life no suicide note was ever found and the initial forensic report was inconclusive nevertheless supreme court prosecutor demetrius linos said that Costas' death was clearly tied to the eavesdropping operation. If there had not been the phone tapping, there would not have been a suicide. He said in June 2006, in his report, Prosecutor Yanis Diotis also said that Costas had knowledge of the illegal phone tapping software and Georgios Constantopoulos, a former colleague in charge of communication security for Vodafone, reportedly told prosecutors that he was sure Costas was in a position to know about the spy software and that his death was likely connected to the discovery. So anyway, the story goes on. This it's a really long story, um, but it's basically what happens. When you find out information and they think you're a threat, they think you're an organizer, they just come after you in one way well, or the other right now. Really scary. I and mean, that's not scary anymore.
1: It's really disturbing that we live in a nation like that now. So you know, this goes back to 2004 or 2006,
0: so you can imagine if they had those type of capabilities way back in the early 2000s. Can
1: you imagine what they can do today? It's unprecedented. unprecedented. But they're not getting the information because they're really looking for terrorists.
0: They're gathering information on every individual so that you can use SMICE, sex, money, ideology, coercion, or ego, to get them to do what you want them to do. You know, that that
1: nudge, to nudge you in the direction they want you to go in. If you're compromised, the snitches who become the bitches for the state. You don't ever shake hands with people like this. You would think
0: people would be smart enough not to do it, yet we have a nationwide network of
1: civilian sleeper cells for the state. Because they're all fucking compromised now. So this story comes out about what happened. I mean, hanging is a standard operating procedure.
0: How many targets? Oh, they were found hung. Must have committed suicide. That's bullshit. You could deactivate the brain, put them in like a um, semi-post-hypnotic state,
1: stick a noose around their fucking neck, and then hang them. And by the time you come out of it, you're dead. Robin Williams. But see, I know that they mapped
0: Robin Williams' brain, because Robin Williams was a genius. He he understood. He grasped the concept. He could look at things and come up and analyze. And that's fun. And then he used his comedic talent to educate people. That man just didn't go. They
1: mapped his brain. They don't let people like that die. But they'll kill you when they're done with you. (coughs) Uh, Aaron Schwartz. He's another one hung
0: himself. I mean, you can go back to Gary Webb. He was a San Jose Mercury uh, reporter journalist that was thrown under the bus by fellow journalists, especially at the Los Angeles Times. And he was the one that outed the Iran-Contra and the cocaine, the crack cocaine. You should have seen what they did to his life when they discredited him. Now here's one where they called it suicide. He managed to shoot his own ass in the head two times. How do you shoot yourself in the head twice and then the law enforcement deems it a suicide? You just don't shoot yourself
1: in the head twice. Usually one shot's enough. Oh, but he committed suicide. It's a suicide. It's a car accident. It's a heart attack. And nobody ever thinks twice about it. But it's murder. Even a suicide. It's suicide Did You were killed. They did it to you, and they made it look a certain way. How many targets over the years so that they could use them for field testing, for non-consensual human experimentation
0: to exploit so they could recruit? their nationwide network
1: of civilian brainwashed sleeper cells that could be activated whenever some new target moves into the neighborhood. How many innocent people? So,
0: that was uh, James Bamford and the case of Greece. Some relevant points. I'm going to read this quick one uh, because I like Tom Engelhart from TomDispatch.com. He's one of my favorites because he uses satire. Mm. Tom and en- uh, Tom Graham Engelhart, the Superpower as Victim, posted by Tom Engelhart, 7:54 a.m., September 29, 2015. Three exceptional facts about America: It's safe to be paranoid in the United States by Tom Engelhardt. Given the cluttered landscape of the last 14 years, can you even faintly remember the moment when the Berlin Wall came down? The Cold War ended in a stunned silence of shock and triumph in Washington. Eastern Europe was freed, Germany unified, and the Soviet Union, Union vanished from the face of the earth? Question mark. At the epochal moment Six centuries of imperial rivalries ended. Only one mighty power was left. There hadn't been a moment like it in historical memory. A single hyperpower with a military force beyond compare looming over a planet without rival. Under the circumstances, what wouldn't Washington, what couldn't Washington hope for? The eternal domination of the Middle East and all that oil, a planetary Pax Americana for generations to come. Why not? After all, not even the Romans and the British at the height of their empires had experienced a world quite like this one. Now leap a quarter of a century to the present and note the rising tide of paranoia in this country and the litany of predictions of doom and disaster. Consider the extremities of fear and gloom in the party of Ronald. It's morning again in America, Reagan, in what are called debates. Among it, presidential candidates. And it's hard not to imagine that we are not at the precipice of the decline and fall of just about everything. The American century, question mark so much sawdust on the floor of history. If, however, you look at the country that its top politicians can now hardly mention without defensively wielding the words exceptional, quote-unquote, or indispensable, quote-unquote, the truly exceptional thing is this. As a great power, the United States still stands alone on planet Earth and Americans can exhibit all the paranoia they want in remarkable safety and security. Here, then, are three exceptional facts of our moment. Exceptional fact number one, failure is success, or the United States remains the sole superpower. If you were to isolate the single most striking, if little discussed aspect, of American foreign policy in the first 15 years of the century, it might be that Washington's inability to apply its power successfully just about anywhere confirms that the very that very power, in other words, failure is a marker of success. Let me explain. In the post-9/11 years, American power is there in various highly militarized forms has been let loose repeatedly across a vast swath of the planet from the Chinese borders to deep in Africa. And nowhere in those 14 years, despite dreams of glory and global dominion, has the United States succeeded in any of its strategic goals. That should qualify as exceptional in itself. After all, what are the odds that, in all that time, nothing should turn out as planned or positively by Washington's standards? It could not win its war in Afghanistan, nor its two wars, one ongoing in Iraq, nor has it had success in its present one in Syria. It failed to cow Iran. Its interventions in Libya proved catastrophic. Its various special operations and drone campaigns in Yemen have led to chaos in that country, and so, as novelist Kurt Vonnegut used to say it, goes. Though, there was much talk that the early years of this century of nation-building abroad, American power has been able to build nothing. Its effect everywhere has been purely disintegrative unless you count the creation of a terror caliphate it's part of collapsed syria and iraq as non-disintegrative act under the pressure of american power there have been no victories nor even in any traditional sense successes while whose country while whole countries have collapsed populations have been uprooted and peoples put into flight by the millions. No matter how you measure it, American power has, in other words, been a tempest of failure. Where, then, does success lie? The answer, despite 15 years bouncing from one militaristic disaster to another, can there be any question that signs of decline or not? Or not the United States remains the uncontested sole superpower of planet Earth. Consider that a testimony to the wealth and strength of the country, in many ways, certainly in military terms, despite the hue and cry at the recent Republican debates. There is no power that could or would contest it. If you listen to the Republicans' Russian president, Vladimir Putin, now seem to stand in almost alone for the former Soviet Union. He and his country are, so Republicans, neocons, and top military figures agree, hands down, the country's greatest enemy, a genuine existential threat to the United States. But look at it, looked at in a clear eye fashion, this monstrous yet strangely familiar enemy is in many ways a, ha- a house of cards. Or put another way, Putin as a leader has managed to do a remarkable amount, much of it grim indeed from Ukraine to Syria, with remarkably little. To compare him, no less his country, to the former Soviet Union in his heyday is, however, simply a bad joke. Except perhaps when it comes to its still superpower-sized nuclear arsenal. He is, in fact the head of a rickety embattled energy uh, energy state at a time when the price of oil seems to be headed for the sub-basement. As for China, always assured to be the coming superpower of the last 21st century, don't count on it. As recent economic events there have reminded us, it is a country on the edge, despite more than four to get rich is glorious decades of remarkable economic growth. It remains a relatively poor land whose leadership does not know what might happen if, as in any capitalist economy, bubbles were to burst, things went south, and the economy began to tank. Yes, its military budget, though still modest by Pentagon standards, is rising and it's growing increasingly aggressive in the neighborhood but its leaders still show no signs of wanting to garrison the planet or become a true military competitor to the United States in anything but the most local terms. And China, aside, a quarter century after the Soviet Union imploded, there are still no other potential rivals anywhere on Earth, just strapped regional powers of various sorts and, of course, a set of interlinked extremist terror outfits constantly morphing and growing under the pressure of United States bombing runs, special operation raids and drone assassination campaigns. No question about it. If you're a big fan of Washington's exceptional superdumb superpower dumb, the news isn't exactly cheery. Nothing works the way it did say in Iran in 1953 when the CIA instigated a coup that overthrew a democratically elected government and put its own man on the peacock throne. There, it took 26 years for blowback to occur and the Shah to flee. In 2015, it seems to take only 26 days or maybe 26 minutes. Still, the good news is that, however crippled, the United States power may be in practice, like the cheese of nursery rhyme fame, it, st- it still stands alone. How exceptional is that? Exceptional fact number two, Americans are actually safe and secure. Think of exceptional fact two as the don't believe your ears won. In the post-9-11 era, a national security and global surveillance state of historic proportions has been built and funded on one proposition. That without its 17 intelligence agencies, the Homeland Security Department, and the military, as well as spreading n- numbras of secrecy and classification, that is, its ability not to let citizens know much of anything about what's being done to their, in their name, the American people would be in almost unimaginable danger from a single phenomenon, terrorism, with the adjective Muslim or Islamic implied, if not tacked on. With its its talk over the years of sleeper cells, lone wolves, and plots to kill Americans, this message has been a constant of our words. As the handcuffs handcuffs and arrests of ninth graders in Irving, Texas, for bringing, bringing a clock he cobbled together to school shows, it's now in the American bloodstream. It's also provided the largely unquestioned rationale rationale of the growth of secretive agencies of every sort for the careers of a vast range of top officials for the extraordinary powers granted to what is increasingly a secretive state within a state. As the United States military now has a secret military of ever-expanding proportions in in its midst, Were it to be put in doubt, that state and much else might be put in doubt too. A great deal depends on news of and alarms about endless possible terror plots, which often turn out to have been promoted or instigated by the Federal Bureau of Investigation informants. The message manifests itself in a kind of hysteria over possible future plots claims, largely unsubstantiated or untrue, or past ones that were broken up by agencies of the national security state, and endless stories about how the Islamic state is using the Internet to rouse individuals in this country to commit mayhem here. And yet, exceptional fact two, despite 9-11, the record clearly indicates that Americans are in next to no danger. If you're living in Baghdad, the possibility of terror attacks could not be more real or horrific. If you are living in Irving, Texas, Toledo, Ohio, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, or even New York City, they are close to nil. A country bounded by two oceans and friendly neighbors remains a formula for security with no credit whatsoever to the national security state. In a few places on the planet, is anyone likelier to be safer when it comes to Islamic terror attacks than this one. It is, of course, quite true that the United States has helped spread insecurity and fear in significant areas of the world. It is also true that even Europe is no longer untouched by that insecurity and by violence. In this way, too, it could be said that the United States stands alone, not that you would know it living inside the American terror dome. Let me, then, offer anyone reading this, a practical guarantee. You will not be killed in the continental United States by an Islamic terrorist or someone in sympathy with the Islamic State, or rather your chances of what, of that happening are infinitesimally small. The odds of almost anything else disastrous happening to you, no matter how obscure, is at least as great and in almost every case staggeringly greater including being crushed beneath falling furniture, shot by a tot who has found a stray loaded weapon murdered in a mass killing incident not by a terrorist, struck by lightning, or done in by weather events of almost any sort, knocked off by food poisoning or killed in your own car. As has always been true, the British burning of the Wash of Washington in eighteen fourteen, Pearl Harbor in nineteen forty one, and and 9-11 being the exceptions. The United States has been a remarkably protected place, except, of course, when it came to internal strife of various sorts. That sense of invulnerability explains why the 9-11 attacks had an impact beyond compare, and why it was so easy to build a vast infrastructure meant to oversee the homeland in all sorts of historically intrusive ways. The other side of this, consider... It Exceptional fact two and a half is that, at this point, American taxpayers have invested trillions of dollars in what can only be called a scam. The fleecing of America. <clears throat> exceptional fact number three. A culture of victimhood is developing among the inhabitants of the planet's sole superpower. Given exceptional facts, one and two, what could be more exceptional than significant numbers of Americans living in a fear-based culture of victimhood laced with paranoia and extremism that seems to have captured one of the two major political parties? And that's true. You know, I think that that in order for people to target you, they spread fear about who a target is. The target's dangerous. They can harm you. They can harm the children. So that breeds fear. And then what that does is they jump on board thinking, oh, we got to watch that person or it's okay to do these things and do whatever because of fear. So I did a show where I called it FEAR. That's an acronym. You can fuck everything and run, FEAR, or you can face everything and revolt. And most of these people, they get into their group because then you don't have to take personal responsibility for what you do to somebody else in detriment to their living lives and then you just pass the responsibility off. So that's collective irresponsibility. But a lot of it, had, I call it the fear, smear, hate, retaliation, retaliation, and revenge campaign. The fear, smear, hate,
1: retaliation, and revenge campaign. And that's what they did to targets in the neighborhoods that they've lived in. So remember fear. You can fuck everything and run, which in the beginning most
0: targets did because we didn't know what the hell was going on because we were being blitzed from going to work to walking in
1: the streets to living in your house to, to going anywhere in public areas. You were blitzed. So you fuck everything and you packed and you ran. Now it's like, fuck that shit. Now you say you face everything. And you revolt against it. So in it, Americans are always at the
0: mercy of the evil doers everywhere, including these distinctly in our midst with mayhem in mind. Our military is an un, under wreck. Our Navy, practically a set of dinghies. A Muslim is even in the White House. A malign climate Change movement is eager to destroy capital, capitalism as we know it. Women's bodies are enough of a danger to shut the government down. Immigrants are potential terrorists or rapists, and so on and so on and so forth through a litany of strangely woven fantasies and factoids. This mood was highlighted in the media recently after a man at a Donald Trump rally in New Hampshire in the wake of the second Republican debate. Rose in, a question, wrote, rose in a question period and said, we have a problem in this country. It's called Muslims. We know our current president is one. You know he's not even an American. But anyway, we have training camps growing where they want to kill us. That's my question. When can we get rid of them? Media coverage generally focused on the presidentials or birthers part of the man's statement, ignoring those fantasy training camps for terrorists, assumedly, here in the United States of America, largely ignored as well, were the two other audience members called by Trump, who were no less bizarre. The first, a man said, I applaud the gentleman who stood and said, Obama is a Muslim born abroad, and about the military camps, everyone knows that, right? Trump responded and moved on. The second, a woman, according to The Hill, told him that there is a new Holocaust in New Hampshire and that people are being loaded into boxcars and headed by members of the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. I just wanted you to know that. I mean, how crazy are these fucking people? They got no facts. No facts. Yet these would be God fearing Christians, right? Oh God told you God didn't tell you jack fucking shit. Your pastor told you, and that motherfucker is completely corrupted.
1: Now what you gonna do? He speaks the word of the state, not the word of whatever your higher being is. That's why I can't stand when
0: people talk about religion and then there's all this bigotry this bigotry and intolerance. And then you find out that because their pastor told them. So you don't really believe in the word of God, so to speak. You're listening to the word of man, and man is telling you to be, you know,
1: intolerant and bigoted. And to fear everything. Some kind of pastor, huh? Because God did not say that. So what is it about all these religious
0: people that are out there that claim to know what God is and that the Bible is the Word when the Word is being interpreted by a man or a woman? You don't believe in the Word. You believe in the Word of what some human is telling you and interpreting for you because you don't know how to
1: think for your goddamn fucking self. That's what the problem is in this country. Go with the flow. Go along to get along. That way you don't have to take any personal responsibility because you can just
0: shift it off on somebody else. Because you're all a bunch of chicken shits.
1: That's why targeting, you got to do it at a fucking distance. Because you don't have the balls to face the victim. It's always the same. And then they like to call the target paranoid. Well, you'd be paranoid too if a group of goddamn people were following every aspect of your living fucking life. But you can't call someone paranoid if people are actually messing with them. That's the difference. Your perpetrator community is paranoid because somebody told them to fear the target. And because they don't have the capacity to critically think for themselves, they just go with the program. There's a significant difference between the, being the victim of a crime and perpetrators who are doing it based on bullshit. When you flatten people's tires and you get them into accidents,
0: and you steal from them, and you break and enter, and you sabotage
1: and vandalize, you got a reason to be paranoid. But your perpetrator community doesn't have jacked shit that they can claim that a target ever did to them to justify what they've done to the target. So the second, a woman, according to the Hill, told him that there, okay,
0: there's a new Holocaust. Consider it a small, off-center measure of the sense of fear, persecution, and fantasy now embedded in what's often referred to as the Republican base. Such paranoia is, of course, nothing new in this country, particularly in moments of economic stress. Still, given the years of fear-mongering since 9-11 and the building up of the right-wing media universe, that's both echo chambers and megaphone, this is dangerous stuff. And we're not talking about just a weird set of fringe lunatics here. After all, as the Washington Post reported recently, 54% of Trump supporters and some 43% of Republicans believe that Obama is a Muslim. And so fucking what if he was, even though he's not? What difference does it make? Who the fuck are you guys to judge what type of religion? You know, I believe in the First Amendment. It's freedom of religion. Shit, if you want to worship the fucking devil, I hope the next person who's elected president gets a Koran and a Bible. And a, what, what was the one that Jewish people use And a, a fucking, uh, the, the book of Satan and lays them all out there with the Bill of Rights and then swears on each one of those because you actually believe in the Constitution and you believe that anybody has a right
1: to believe in what they want to until they start interfering with other people's lives. Wouldn't that be great that the next person who is elected president has the balls to do that, including putting a book of Satan
0: and swearing on all of them? that you will respect and defend and protect the Constitution under that First Amendment that says freedom of religion. Who the fuck are these people in America who claim to think that just because you're Muslim, you don't belong here? Then you don't belong in this country
1: because you obviously don't know what the Constitution means. But I dare the next person who becomes commander-in-chief To lay it all out. Every fucking...
2: You know, I don't
0: care. The the book of worshiping the sun. The book
1: of Dharma. The book of Satan. The Bible. In all its different forms. And just lay it all out there. And swear on all of them. Because that means that you believe
0: that a person has the freedom to believe whatever they want without other people
1: trying to instill what they believe, on somebody else. You know, I don't like Obama because he did some stuff that he shouldn't have done because he promised he wouldn't do them and
0: he ended up caving in in terms of the Constitution
1: and warrantless wiretapping and assassination programs. But why is it such a big issue? You mean like when they just made uh, Unipero Sara a saint,
0: who was Catholic? Do you know that apparently, because this is in my hometown over here, they tore up the statue and then wrote the, the, saint, the patron saint of genocide and greed. So the Carmel Police Department over here has the unmitigated gall to consider what happened a hate crime because they only destroyed European statues and not the other ones of people of ethnicity. And I'm thinking, you've got to be kidding me over
1: here. There are
0: real hate crimes taking place, even in your own fucking backyard. Because I remember knocking on the door of the Carmel Police Department and telling them about this goddamn fucking targeting. I even gave them a fucking disc of information.
1: Because I consider what they're doing to a living human being a hate crime. But because they they
0: destroyed statues, you understand? Just statues. They're going to consider it a hate
1: crime. Because only the European statues were destroyed. Now, ain't that about a bitch? but you see how the double standard works, don't you? And I'm going to talk shit
0: about every law enforcement agency that I walked through those goddamn doors on, and you guys turned me away. Because I knew what I was talking about was the truth. Now, who you sold out to, that's on your ass. And eventually, I'm going to find out who you sold out to. But what you don't have, you know, equal protection and equal rights under the law? You know,
1: deprivation of rights under the color of law. You know, all those things that you decided you didn't have to deal with. Someone in a position of power, authority, and or expertise
0: told you you didn't have to do it. And you knew that they were harming innocent people. But you're more worried about some statues at a church. And then you're going to call that shit a hate crime?
1: Give me a fucking break, Carmel PD. Because you're some of those people that need to get a grip on fucking reality. So in this context, while the United States military pursues its failing
0: wars, interventions, and raids abroad, while the national security state develops even more mechanisms for snooping, surveilling, and controlling populaces at home. As in the recent essentially unprecedented security lockdowns of major American cities for the Pope, many of the country's citizens are increasingly living inside a fact-challenged, fantasy of a country, a victimized superpower. Boogeymen lurk around every corner, as do high crimes and dark conspiracies, and any sense of responsibility for what the United States has done in the world in these last years is missing in action. In the meantime, we live on an increasingly disturbed planet in which the basics of drought fire and flood melting and freezing are gaining new meaning in which power seems not to be expressing or displaying itself in the normal reasonably predictable ways the sun may be setting a little bit slowly indeed on american imperial power but perhaps it is also setting on imperial power as we've known it and if
1: so That would truly be exceptional. So I'm going to close with Saul Williams. Um,
0: Back before the war, a lot of people, including myself, it was called a pledge to resist. It's not in our name. So I'm going to close the show with this pledge. Maybe, you know, someone was asking the other day, you know, how come these people um, were all those activists and things? I'm going to tell you something about the activists, okay? Most of these people have been fighting since the early 2000s. You know, we're tired, It's time for other people to be stepping up to the plate because the same people have been out there trying to fight this fight and nobody seems to care
1: until it happens to them and then it's too late. Greatest Americans have not been born yet.
2: Please give blood so that the beings
1: in waiting will find their way into the wombs of warrior women. Not in our name. The pledge to resist. We believe
2: that as a people living in the United States, it is our responsibility to resist the injustices done by our government in our name. Not in our name will you wage endless war. There can be no more death, no more transfusions of blood for oil. Not in our name will you invade countries, bomb civilians, kill more children, letting history take its course over the graves of the nameless. Not in our names will you erode the very freedoms you have claimed to fight for. Not by our hands will we supply weapons and funding for the annihilation of families on foreign soil. Not by our mouths will you let fear silence us. Not by our hearts will we allow whole peoples or countries to be deemed evil. Not by our will and not in our name. We pledge resistance. We pledge alliance with those who have some attack for voicing opposition to the war or for the religion or ethnicity. We pledge to make common cause with the people of the world to bring about justice, freedom, and peace. Another world is possible, and we pledge to make it real.
0: So that was Saul Williams, and there was a pledge that they put out prior to the war on Iraq back in the early 2000s, and people signed the pledge, a lot of people. But all those people are kind of tired because we've got to keep fight We've been fighting. Some of these people are dedicated. There are some people that I know that we started a neighborhood group in L.A. and it was one small corner. And before the war started, there were 100, almost 200 corners spread throughout the L.A. County area of people protesting against the war. Look at the mess that we're in now. So people like me get
1: put on a list because I organized in the background? So you're going to destroy my character and my credibility? You're going to take away my finances? You're going to destroy my relationship with people,
0: so you can keep me isolated and under your thumb and in control? Because I won't because I don't go with go along to get along like everybody else, so you don't
1: need to target them because they're all a bunch of sheeple? That's bullshit. I live in America, motherfuckers. Land of the free, home of the brave. The right to self determination. So when any whenever anybody tells me that I hate my country, that's a crock
0: of shit. I'm still out here fighting for the very fundamental principles of that constitution. I haven't
1: given up on this country, but the people I deal with, they have. So it's not that I don't like my government. I hate corruption.
0: I despise it.
1: And that's what's running rampant in this nation, is corruption. But don't ever come up to me when I fight every day for my constitutionally protected rights and
0: liberties and tell me that I don't care about this country or the government. Because my government is that constitution. The people who are in those positions are the placeholders for what the Constitution
1: says their duties are. So I don't give up. And I won't give up.
0: Because I believe in that Constitution. Now all the people that I'm dealing with, in terms of the perpetrator community, who think that they're patriotic, are the very people who have given up on this nation. Because when you say that my constitutionally protected rights or that target's constitutionally protected rights or that person's constitutionally protected rights don't matter, then in essence, you as the individuals who claim that my rights and somebody else's rights don't exist are the ones who relinquish their own rights
1: because they're saying they don't matter. You can't have it both ways. But don't ever tell me about what you think I am
0: and what you think I don't like. Because I wouldn't be here doing these 700 shows demanding that my constitutionally protected rights, my human rights, my civil rights, my civil liberties be
1: respected and adhered to if I didn't believe in this nation. So that's why I keep coming back. Because I'm never going to stop until the very last
0: breath I take on this earth. Because I want the people who dared to place my name on a list for targeting be executed
1: for treason. Period. No compromise. Because I hate traitors. And I'm dealing with a nationwide network of traders.